Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here, and hi, everyone at home. It's weird talking to a camera, but hi, everybody. Uh, glad that you're all tuning in or here. Um, my name's Adam, and it's my, my privilege and pleasure to bring God's Word to you today. Uh, before we get into our, our sermon for today, I do want to say just one quick announcement. We sent out a, a survey to you parents of kids 18 and younger here at Bethel, uh, talking about uh, potentially someday reopening classes uh, somewhere down the line. Uh, so if you have not already filled out that survey, please fill it out and uh, turn it in. Uh, you can send uh, it back to me at adam at bethelchurchak.org. And if you look at our bulletin, you can find out how to get one if you didn't get it, or maybe it's in your spam filter. But uh, thanks to those of you who've already filled it out. Um, and just as uh, before we start too, I also want to just say welcome back to all of our, our military families uh, who are back in our midst. We've had some uh, long deployment and a lot of our folks are back. So if, if you are part of that. Welcome. We're glad you're, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're back. Uh, and we're excited uh, for what's, what's in store here. Uh, let's go ahead and pray and we'll get into God's word. Lord, uh, come to you with joy and yet uh, knowing that uh, every day there's tough decisions for us to make regarding COVID, regarding life and decisions and schooling and all these different things. Um, pray, uh, too, for people who are even having uh, difficulty coming back from maybe being overseas and reintegrating. Give us your grace this morning, we pray, Lord. Uh, we just need a, um, some time in your presence, some time uh, focused on you. So get our heart's attention. Uh, we love you. Um, keep us from distraction and help us to focus on you today. Uh, we pray all this for your glory, Jesus. Amen. Uh, well, I want to start out this morning uh, by talking about a movie. It's somewhat dated, but pretty well known. Uh, and then ask you a question about one particular part of that movie, if you happen to have seen it. The movie happened way back in 1997. That was last century. Uh, so I'm showing my age here. The movie was Titanic. And if you were around back then, you know it was kind of a big deal. It won a bunch of uh, Oscars. It was the first film to gross over a billion dollars uh, in the life of the film, which was kind of a big thing. And like I say, for those of us who are that old to remember the film, it was kind of a, a big thing. It impacted a generation. Uh, if you don't know the storyline of a movie named Titanic, it's about a sinking boat, right? Uh, but more than that, it's about a love story on a sinking boat here. And I have a little image here. Um, it's about a young woman named Rose, and she finds herself on a sinking boat, I saw the eyes rolling, John Chodo, <laughs> uh, uh, on a sinking boat uh, between two particular young men. One she's engaged to. The guy on the left, he's rich, he's slick, uh, a little bit boring and not very nice, and she doesn't love him. Uh, the other one is Jack, who is penniless and living for the day. And, and over the course of this sinking boat love story, love triangle movie, Rose has to choose between these two particular guys. And the, the particular scenes I put up here, it's two different images. It's, it's actually near the end of the movie. Titanic has been hit by the iceberg. It's going down. Rose, as she looks up at these two guys that she's uh, been involved with, is being lowered on a life raft to safety. She's going to get off the sinking boat. And she looks back at these two men. And if you've seen the movie or if you've heard about it, you know that she does something a little crazy at this particular scene in the movie. She jumps off of the life raft back onto the sinking Titanic. 
And my question, just to get us started here this morning, is if you saw that movie, and if you remember back 23 years ago, uh, did you think that Rose made a mistake? Or did she make the right choice? Now, I'm sure that James Cameron, the director, was banking that, uh, um, trying to, to make people think that she made the right choice. I mean, after all, uh, you know those English majory types who write movie scripts? Uh, it's not just about a love story. I would actually argue that this, this particular scene the Titanic is it's symbolic of something bigger. bigger. Uh, because Rose isn't just choosing between two particular young men. She's choosing between two particular ways of living. Jack, uh, or I'll say, I forget the rich guy's name, the rich guy uh, represents a life that's slow and steady, boring, loveless. Jack represents something that's more dangerous, more exciting, even if it's shorter lived. So it's the choice of living your life like a candle that burns slowly or like a firework that burns brightly. And um, if you don't believe me that there's some symbolism going on here, I'll just say this. I've watched the scene this, this week. It's about two minutes long. The scene cuts between Rose's face, the two guys. Rose's face, the two guys. Rose's face, one guy, just Jack. And then you see Rose's face light up. There's a flare that has gone off in the background that has given her this epiphany. And guess who it's behind? Jack. That's the point when she jumps off the life raft back into the boat. She's made her choice. I want to live this vibrant, bold life. And um, it's James Cameron's attempt to say, well, how do you live a life worth living? And I think that he tapped into something in people's kind of psyches here because he was saying, you know what? There's something worse than death, and that's a life that's not fully lived. And uh, I think he's tapped, James Cameron's tapped into something because we all recognize there are things that are worse than death. But my question for you is, did James Cameron get it right? Is a life not fully lived really the thing that's worse than death? I'll tip my hand. I think he got it wrong. And I'll tell you why. One reason why is because of this particular passage that we're going to look at today in God's Word. Uh, It's a very familiar passage with Jesus and Peter. You probably know it well. But this scene between Jesus and Peter is going to flip that conclusion that a life, that something worse than death is a life not fully lived. It's going to flip that conclusion on its head. Now, there is something worse than death, but Jesus comes to a much different conclusion than James Cameron. And uh, we're going to ask our question this morning and say, well, what is it? that Jesus considers to be as worse than death. We want to know so we can avoid it, and we want to know so that we can live a life that is truly full. Now, uh, if you've been along with us this summer in our preaching series, we're in a series called Encounters with Jesus. And uh, usually each week we take an encounter between Jesus and an individual. This week, uh, Peter is in the scene with Jesus, but really the encounter that Jesus has this week that we're going to focus on is an encounter with a particular temptation. And I'm not going to name it just yet, but I'll say this. We know from Scripture that he faced this temptation again and again in his ministry and life, and it's a temptation that we face almost on a daily basis. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at first Jesus' example of how he lived. Then we're going to look at 
Jesus' words to his disciples, what he said to them about this temptation. And as a result, we're going to find out from Jesus' perspective what is really worse than death so that we can know how to have a life that's really worth living. Uh, we're going to be in Mark's gospel, uh, Mark chapter 8, if you want to start uh, opening your apps or turning your Bibles over to Mark chapter 8. Uh, and if you've been with us for a while, you know that Mark's gospel is bar none my favorite gospel out of the four. I won't go into all the reasons there, but it's, it's quirky. Uh, it's full of action. The, the disciples are constantly portrayed as clueless. It's just, it's just gritty and grainy, and I just love it. And I would go so far as to say that the, the scene that we're going to focus on in Mark chapter 8, will be in Mark 8.27, is really the hinge to the entire gospel. It is the watershed moment in Mark's gospel that makes sense of the first eight chapters. And it also gives, sets the direction for where the rest of the gospel is going to go. It's that important. And this scene in Mark chapter 8 deals with the same big-ticket question that James Cameron, director of Titanic, already wrestled with. What is it exactly that is worse than death? And how do we live a life worth living? So if you're not already there, open your Bibles. We are in Mark chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 27. Uh, what is it that's worse than death, according to Jesus? So I'm not going to tell you straight up. We're going to look at a few clues. First clue here, we're going to look at Jesus' example. And our first clue is that Jesus lived to please the Father, not himself. 8.27, Jesus is midway through his earthly ministry, and he's having a little chat with his disciples. Verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Okay, let's uh, pause right there, uh, digest this a little bit, quite a few verses. Uh, it starts out, Jesus is traveling with his disciples. They're in the north of the country, kind of moving south towards Jerusalem, where Jesus will be crucified and killed, and then rise again from the dead. And the whole first half of Mark's gospel has been focused on this singular question, who is this Jesus guy, really? And that's why I say that uh, Mark 8 is this watershed passage, because it first brings that whole ongoing question, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? to a head when he, he surveys his disciples and say, hey, who do people say that I am? And uh, the answers that his disciples give, they're all kind of in the same vein. They're all kind of answer a prophet. Well, um, John the Baptist, he's a prophet, and Elijah's a prophet, or one of the prophets. Prophet, prophet, prophet. And when Jesus asks the disciples, well, what about you? Well, who do you say that I am? 
It's almost like Jesus is saying, well, okay, that's what the crowds say. Is that a sufficient answer for you? Does that kind of cover all our bases? I'm just a prophet. And then Peter has this brilliant response. You are the Christ. And we really need to have the impact of that hit us a little bit here. I mean, we're used to just saying, oh, yes, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus is the Messiah. I don't know if it hits the same way that it would hit that first century Jewish audience. It's like the Messiah was on a whole other level than just one of God's prophets, right? There are many spokesmen or prophets for God, but there was only one Messiah. It's like saying, you're the one, Jesus, who's come to fix this broken world. You're the guy, and we're in it with you. And it's this huge confession from Peter. Interestingly, in Mark's gospel, Mark doesn't make a whole lot of Peter's response. In Matthew, uh, we hear a little bit more. Jesus says, well done. Uh, you're right, and I'm gonna, on you, I'm going to build my church. He makes more out of Peter's confession. In Mark's gospel, it's minimalistic. He says, Jesus, you're the Christ. And you get a very curious verse 30. And he, Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. You're the Messiah. Shh. There should be a question mark in our head. Why did he do that? Why did he say, don't tell anyone, at least not yet? It's probably because uh, they did not have a correct understanding about who the Messiah was and what he was like to be. And this kind of bears out with where the text goes from there in verse 31. It says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. Uh, a lot of things in there. Uh, first off is the word must. Jesus understands Messiah that these things, these bad things that are going to happen, it's a necessity. It's a requirement for Messiah to suffer, to be rejected, and to die. And he does mention he's going to rise again. But most of this is really bad news. And we get this very kind of interesting snippet in verse 32 from Mark where he says, and he said this plainly. Uh, now that really kind of pops in the gospel as a whole because like I said earlier, um, in Mark's gospel, the, the disciples are pretty often portrayed as clueless or not understanding or saying, Jesus, you're talking in riddles. Can you explain this to us? Here, they got it. Uh, the light bulb went off for them. They understood what Jesus was saying and they didn't like it. So fortunately, Peter comes up to bat to fix things, right? Uh, Peter begins to teach the Messiah about Messiah. Verse 32, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Uh, this just makes me laugh when I think about the scene. We don't get many words describing it here, right? But uh, he took him aside. So this is private, right? Don't embarrass the boss in front of the guys. We want to save some face here. I'll just have a little talk and we'll fix things here, right? But how comical is it that this fisherman guy who's been walking with Jesus for a while is going to correct the Messiah about what it means to be the Messiah? But don't we do that with God too? We go, God, I really think you ought to do this this way. Why are you doing it that way, right? And I wonder, what exactly did Peter say? I mean, I wish we had the, the scripted dialogue here uh, and here's exact words. Um, you know, I imagine uh, on one part of it, he probably said something like, Jesus, you're being so negative. Quit it. Guys are getting down. You're bumming them out, right? But probably part of it is he probably negated the three things that Jesus began to teach them. That Jesus says, Messiah must suffer. 
Peter probably says, you don't have to suffer. You're going to have enjoyment, victory, pleasure. It's going to be good. Jesus said Messiah must be rejected by the leaders. Peter probably says, hey, they're going to love you. We love you. What's not to love about you, Jesus? They're all going to love you, right? Jesus said Messiah must die. Peter's like, you're not going to die. You're going to live. You're going to win. But in all these this encouraging rebuke, perhaps, from Peter, Jesus hears a certain temptation that will name the call of the world. Not the call of the wild, but the call of the world. It's basically saying you don't have to suffer. You can have what feels good for you. You don't have to face rejection. You can have popularity and acceptance. You don't have to have death You can just have what's good for you. Put your own interests first. It's all going to be great. But what does Jesus do when he hears this call of the world? He just vehemently rejects the call of the world. Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man, okay? Things of God being, what does God want? Your kingdom come, your will be done. What does God want in the world? You're setting your mind on the things of man, the stuff that we may all chase and building up our own little kingdoms here on earth, our pleasures, our agendas, our dreams. And Jesus has a very sharp response, wouldn't you say? It's kind of take no prisoners. He doesn't just go, Oh, Peter, thanks for your attempted encouragement, but I think I'll stick the course. No, he says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, I almost wish I knew how he had intonation for that, right? Get behind me, Satan. Um, And um, he doesn't hear words of encouragement from a friend, but this temptation from the pit of hell to divert him from his father's mission in his life. And it's interesting for us to think about here uh, that Jesus faced similar temptations at other, point in his, other points in his ministry. I talked earlier, I kind of alluded to these. I said um, uh, one thing, I didn't spell it out, but um, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's tempted by the devil, and one of the temptations is, bow down before me, and I'll give you all this, right? Short, easy, uh, you can have it now, no suffering, no pain. Uh, he faces it here. And then in Gethsemane, it's a little bit different, but basically you see that Jesus, even in his prayer to the Father, is struggling a little bit with, between what he wants and what he knows the Father wants. He says, not my will, but your will be done. Uh, he says, take this cup away from me if you can, but I, I will do your will. So over and over, Jesus gets this temptation of the call of the world uh, upon him, and time after time, he gives it the stiff arm and knocks it out of the way. And we get these words uh, here that say, turning and seeing his disciples. You can imagine Peter's just kind of making his case. Jesus is looking and he looks back and he sees his disciples. And I think what's going on here is Jesus realizes that even though Peter's the one doing the talking, these other people are probably struggling with the same thoughts that Peter has. He might be their representative there. And so he sees this as an opportunity for an object lesson uh, for the whole group. So uh, let's move on here. What is it that's worse than death? Ah, wait for it. I'm not going to tell you yet. Our first clue, Jesus' actions show that he lived to please the Father, not himself. 
Second clue, Jesus' words to his disciples. Jesus expects his disciples to live for him and the gospel, not for themselves. Let's uh, read the passage in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save their life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Verse, sorry, chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Okay, let's talk about this. Um, Jesus turns, he talks to the whole crowd, the disciples here. Look at how universal uh, his words are to these people. It applies to all of them. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples. So this is not just for his A-listers, his Green Berets or his Navy SEALs, his, his top disciples. This is for the crowd as well here. And even his words are issued pretty broadly. He says, if anyone would come after me. Uh, so it's broad. It's universal here. And he says this important little word, if. If you want to follow me. You don't have to. You don't have to follow Jesus. But he says, if you want to follow after me, this is how you do it. This is how it's got to go. You have to deny yourself and take up your cross. And then you follow me. Well, let's talk about this. Uh, the denying of self, taking up your cross. I think actually the, the first one's a little bit harder to, to get our heads around. Denying self. What does it really mean to deny yourself? Um, Short version here is, I think it means, it doesn't mean you just deny yourself something, but it's where you deny a life, a lifestyle where you're at the center of the universe, where you're at the center of things. And I think the objection in my heart and yours is, but I don't live that way. I'm not selfish. I'm a good guy, right? Uh, but in my more honest moments, I'll admit I struggle with this, right? We all struggle with uh, using our time or talents or money or whatever we have on choosing to build up our own little kingdom that's comfortable for us. And if you don't believe me that we live in a culture focused on the self, just look at our fast food slogans over the years, right? Uh, the old Burger King slogan, you can have it your way. Any burger you want, it's all about you. Uh, McDonald's old one, you deserve a break today, right? You've, you've earned this break, right? Or their newer one, still a little bit old, is I'm loving it. It's about your pleasure, right? Or the best fast food slogan of our day, Yokieto Taco Bell. I want Yokieto. I want it. And that's what our world is about. What do you want? How do you want to have it your way? And we hear this in other ways. What sparks your joy? Where do you find fulfillment? Or in people encouraging us, just live your truth and you be you. And the truth is, is uh, especially I think in, in the U.S., we tend to make an idol of the self, right? We applaud people who will pursue their dreams and their passions with reckless abandon, no matter what those dreams are. And um, uh, look at what Jesus says here, though, in this passage. I mean, can we even imagine Jesus coming to us in the 21st century 
having a conversation with us and saying, well, live your truth. You be you. Follow your dreams, right? It's preposterous. That's not what Jesus is saying to those who would follow after him. And so one commentator talking about this denial of the self kind of sums it up and says, well, what Jesus calls for here in self-denial, it's a radical abandonment of one's own identity and self-determination. Such self-denial is on a different level altogether from giving up chocolates for Lent. It's not the denial of something to the self, but the denial of self itself. Self itself. Self itself. It sounds a little funny to say that, right? But it's not just denying yourself a thing. It's saying, no, I'm not going to live at the center of my own universe. I want to live for the things that are important to God. And that's why uh, the call to take up one's cross follows. This is a call to die, right? It's a shameful, humiliating death, and it's a take-no-prisoners approach to this call of the world in our hearts. goes on in verse 35, and Jesus gives uh, a result that comes from this. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. And this result that Jesus says here, it's kind of uh, counterintuitive or maybe paradoxical, you could say. Verse 35, what does that really mean? He's saying that if you live a life that's fixed on yourself and, and is pursuing self-fulfillment, you're going to end up empty. But if you give up your life and you surrender seeking to live just for yourself and you choose to live for Jesus, what's important to him in the gospel, counterintuitively, as a byproduct almost, you will take hold of real life. Life of eternal value and worth in God's eyes, even if it's not in mankind's. And uh, I think we need to remember this aspect of life because this whole passage can get a bit of a bum rap, right? Oh, deny yourself, take up your cross. I don't want to hear about denial and death. But we forget that Jesus offers real life here as well. Uh, a few weeks back, Pastor Eric quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer. is probably his most famous quote. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Pretty grim. And it's a good quote, but that's part of it. Jesus also calls us to have this full life that comes from living for God. So we don't have to be like the monks in a Monty Python movie wearing dark robes and chanting sad songs and bonking our heads. There is a real promise of life here. Verse 35, whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. It's going to come here as a result. And if I can even look forward to uh, that last verse I read, chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now he's talking about the transfiguration scene, which follows in chapter 9. We're not going to talk about that. But his point is, is that the reward that we get is far greater than the cost and sometimes we get a little taste of it and glimmer of it here and now. It's like Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm asking you for everything, but what you get in return is a much better deal than trying to live for yourself. Look at the world. You have a home that's far brighter than this one. And just as I think of this one, kind of what echoed in my mind was Hebrews 11. It's the hall of faith, you know, all these different people in the Bible who live by faith. And part of it, I'm paraphrasing here, says, you know, these people, they were all seeking a better country, a heavenly one, and God has prepared a city for them. There's something much better to be gained, even though we 
turn away from a life fixated on ourselves. And um, just as we move on through the passage here, Jesus is saying, well, there's a big choice to make if you want to follow me, but before you make that decision, consider what's at stake. First thing that's at stake, uh, verse 36. What is a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Uh, we don't talk about souls a whole lot. I'm a pastor at a church, and I don't talk about souls in those words so much. Uh, the word there is actually the same as the word life in verse 35. It's the same. Uh, but it's not just talking about like this kind of energy or electricity that makes your body move, like that kind of life. It's talking about your full life. All you are as a person, your, your life that continues beyond just your physical death. It's who you are for all time. It's your integrity of being. And Jesus is contrasting this thing of great value with all that, with all that stuff in the world. He says, man, you put the two on the scales. This is far more valuable. Don't buy it. Don't go for the bait. Don't go for that stuff. Second thing he says to them, uh, to remind them of which way to go here, his evidence to say, consider what's on the table. Verse 38 for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And I think that Jesus, again, is bringing it home here to show them the weight of the decision that faces them. And he doesn't sugarcoat it. I mean, this is a pretty uh, punchy statement from Jesus, right? He says, this is uh, an adulterous and sinful generation. And uh, I'm not a huge history buff, but I don't think he meant that 80, 32, or whatever precise year it was that he said this was like the worst year ever. I mean, there's probably some other years in human history that can compete with being adulterous and sinful. But his point is, is that until he reigns uh, in power over the earth, every generation is one of unfaithfulness and one that turns away from God. And in these two things, he says, you've got a big decision, but really it's a no-brainer. The whole world or your soul? Man, it's your soul. Glory, acceptance, and comfort in a short-lived, godless block of time that's going to pass away? Or glory, acceptance, and God's blessing in an age that will never end or fade? No-brainer. Big choice, but man, all the evidence is over here. It will cost you. You will have to reject the call of the world by dying to yourself. Okay, coming back full circle here, going to wrap it up, coming in for a landing. What is it that's worse than death here? First bit of evidence, Jesus' example. Jesus lived to please the Father, not himself. Second bit of evidence, Jesus' words to his disciples saying, if you want to follow me, you got to live for what I want here and, and for the gospel, not for yourselves. And in these two things, in Jesus' example, in his words, we can answer that initial question. What's really worse than death? It's not, like James Cameron might have us believe, a life not fully lived. But instead, what's really worse than death, according to Jesus, is a life not fully lived for God. It's a life not fully lived for God, but that's squandered and wasted just focusing on ourselves. And that's why I think that that whole analogy with Rose in the movie Titanic falls apart. 
I mean, granted, they're writing from a non-Christian perspective, and maybe that's the best kind of life goal they could come up with apart from God. Uh, but what is the life fully lived, according to Titanic, if you saw the movie, right? You see Rose, she's old, she's dying, and you see this uh, kind of panorama of photos through her life of the life fully lived. Uh, and it's, again, it's a little bit comical to me. I watched again this last week. It's about 50 seconds long. Uh, she's riding a horse in front of a roller coaster. She's flying an airplane. She's riding an elephant. She catches a giant fish. And uh, it all boils down to her life of fulfillment was just one focused on her own dreams and ambitions. And apparently writing a lot of things because that's what they're all of in there. But today's example, Jesus' interaction with Peter and the call of the world flips that example on its head because the choice is not really between do you want to have a long, quiet life or a vibrant, bold life? But the question is, is do you want to live a life of self-interest focused on me, not me, Pevic, but yourselves? Or do you want to live a life for God? Are you going to take up the call of you be you or you die to you so that you can live for God? What's worse than death is not a life it, what's worse than death is a life not fully lived for God. What's truly worth living for is to give our all to him. Um, just as a point or two of application here, there's probably too much application that we could draw out of this to get quickly. So I'll just give you two kind of broad categories. Uh, first of all, if we want to live for the things of God, we have to know what the things of God are, right? And my wife, Holly, jokes, she says, the application of every sermon is to pray and read your Bible, right? Okay, so you get those two. Um, but I think another one, particularly for us all in the time of coronavirus, and this one's a little bit more challenging, is to make sure we make time to get together with other brothers and sisters however we can, if that's in person, if that's in the Zoom call or walking uh, on a trail or something like that, but to get together with another brother or sister and talk about the things of God. Say, what are you reading in Scripture? Uh, or I had this question, how have you dealt with it in your life? We need to hear from our brothers and sisters so we can be reminded of what it is, what the things of God are and how other people live them out. We need that discipleship in our lives and we need to share that with others as well. Second big umbrella category, uh, once we kind of get a hold on what the things of God are, we just need to spend some time with a little bit of prayerful and sometimes painful examination and say, well, Lord, where, where am I at here with my own yo quiero? What's the stuff that I want that's getting in the way of what you want? And just go through family, relationships, work, free time, how you spend money, and even one's life goals and bucket lists. Do people have bucket lists? I guess people must have bucket lists. But just go through and say, God, where do I need to go straight here? Fortunately, we have the help of the Holy Spirit if we're believers in Christ, because this is hard. We can't do this on our own, but we have the empowerment and strength of the Holy Spirit to help us through this and say, I want to live more for you. Uh, I want to live this life of real value that comes from saying, I'm not going to live focused here, but I'm going to live focused on you by the strength that you give me. Um, let's pray. Lord, it's humbling to think that even, even in your earthly life here, you face this temptation of the call of the world more than once. The call to just uh, get your kicks, take what was good for you, and uh, that would have left the rest of us empty. Thank you uh, that you took the hard road. And uh, as hard as it is to hear your words that we need to uh, deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you, we thank you that um, 
You don't leave us powerless, but you give us your Holy Spirit to help us with that. You give us brothers and sisters to help us walk that out. We want to walk with you. So help us. Show us specific things. Uh, Make it concrete in each of our hearts that we can glorify you. And we praise you, and we delight in you. Give us a great week here. Uh, We pray this for your glory, Jesus. Amen. All righty, everybody. We'll see you next week.